Hello and uh, welcome to the latest episode of the Smithflix Experience. Thank you for joining me. Once again, I'm your host, as always, Eric Smith. Uh, we are continuing our journey through the world of James Bond. Uh, but before we begin, I do want to give a shout out. Uh, as I mentioned in previous episodes, our podcast has reached international status. Uh, first with an uh, audience in uh, Australia uh, and then Brazil. Uh, now we're reached the UK. I mean, the home of James Bond. Uh, you know, so hopefully there's some uh, viewers out there in London that are enjoying this. Uh, I welcome you. I thank you for everyone for listening. Uh, again, I'd love to hear from you. And it, just uh, shoot me an email, smithflixpodcast at gmail.com. Or leave a comment in the episode section on Spotify or wherever you listen to wherever you listen to the uh, show. So, again, I thank you for listening. So, so yes, we've reached three separate continents. We, we're in Europe, Australia, and in South America. So let's let's keep it going. Well, technically four, of course, the United States, but. So yeah, four total continents, North America, South America, Australia, and Europe. So let's let's keep it rolling. Um, but uh, this episode, I mean, we're, we're kind of at the sort of the, the bottom of the barrel of the Bond franchise, if you will. So um, buckle up. We got a heck of a show for you. Uh, this time we're taking a look at A View to a Kill. song and you'll probably hear me say that a lot throughout this episode and um, i honestly i we should just play that entire song and not talk about the this uh lackluster bond film but i wouldn't be doing the uh the the series any justice so we have to but yeah i, I almost i was very tempted to just let that thing play out i, I got into it again and as i as i always do when i hear that song so uh, it's absolutely wonderful so uh, let's get to it. A View to a Kill. Uh, this was the 14th Bond film uh, of the official franchise, and it was technically uh, 
related to the eighth novel, uh, the, the series of short stories from the uh, Four Your Eyes Only short stories. But it's eight, 1985, and 1985 was a big year. Back to the Future gave us a new exciting look into time travel. Uh, dozens of popular artists and musicians got together to sing We Are the World to raise money to fight famine in Africa. Live Aid rocks out around the world to raise funds for famine relief in Ethiopia. The Nintendo was released. And actually, any of those would make a better subject than this next Bond film. <laughs> now, again, while the film borrows most of its title from a short story within the Four Year Eyes Only collection, as I mentioned just a moment ago, the plot is completely original and has nothing to do with the short story. Now, there was another gaffe with the James Bond will return sequence in the end credits of Octopussy. At the end, it stated that James Bond will return in From a View to a Kill, which was the original concept title because it was, that's what the short story is called, From a View to a Kill. Uh, but as production began, for no apparent reason, they decided to drop the From. It just became A View to a Kill. Uh, again, there's rare posters out there that might be that stay from a view to a kill. That'd be kind of cool to see. So. Now, Roger Moore returns for the seventh and final time. Moore had already contemplated retiring from the role prior to Octopussy, but was coaxed into returning to compete with Sean Connery in the non-Eon production Never Say Never Again. The producers managed to convince Moore to return again for this film, although details are unclear how they managed to do that. Uh, maybe Moore wanted to succeed Connery as being in the most Bond films. And Moore does end up holding the two distinctions in the franchise. He's the oldest man to portray Bond. He was 57 by 1985. And for starring in the most Bond films, which was seven. Now, Cubby Broccoli would later go on to regret convincing him to return, as he did felt, you know, after seeing the final product, he's like, God, he was too old. Why did I do this? So. Hindsight. Hindsight is 2020, Mr. Broccoli. So we all make mistakes. It happens. It's not the worst film in the world, but eh, we'll get to that in a moment here. Let's let's not get ahead of ourselves. All right. So for the role of the psychopathic billionaire Max Zorin, the role was originally accepted by acclaimed English singer and actor David Bowie. Early publicity was announced as early as 1984. However, Bowie later dropped out of the role, saying, he, I didn't want to spend five months watching my stunt double fall off cliffs. I do my best David Bowie impression. I didn't want to spend five months watching my stunt double fall off cliffs. I don't know if that's... I haven't heard a soundbite of David Bowie forever, so that might be the worst Bowie impression ever. So Now, the role was then offered to English singer and actor Sting, who turned it down. The offer was then made to American actor Christopher Walken, who accepted. And yes, I get to do my Christopher Walken impression. As, and uh, you guys will decide whether it's good or bad. When Max Zorin talks, he'll probably be talking like Christopher Walken in this. Now, Walken was born in New York City in 1943 as Ronald Walken. As a child, Walken appeared on screen as an extra in numerous anthology series and variety shows in what was known as the Golden Age of Television. After appearing in a sketch with Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis on the Colgate Comedy Hour, of course, which you can see uh, on YouTube, uh, Walk Walken decided he wanted to become an actor. He made his acting debut in 1953 on the TV show The Wonderful John Acton, 
in which he was credited as Ronnie Walken. His brothers were also child actors, influenced by their mother's dreams of stardom. Walken attended Hofstra University, but dropped out after one year after he was cast in an off-Broadway production of Best Foot Forward alongside Liza Minnelli. He initially trained as a dancer at the Washington Dance Studio before moving on to dramatic acting. His acting career took off on stage, appearing in the 1966 Broadway premiere of The Lion in Winter, the 1968 production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, and Romeo and Juliet at the Stratford Festival in Canada. In 1964, he changed his name to Christopher at the suggestion of Belgian-American actress Monique Van Voren, who had a nightclub act in which Walken was a dancer. She felt the name suited him better than Ronnie or Ronald. Walken made his feature film debut in the 1971 Sidney Lumet crime film The Anderson Tapes opposite Bond alum Sean Connery. Always some tie to that. That's always fascinating. He also landed a role in the 1977 Woody Allen cl classic romantic comedy Annie Hall. And, and a funny gaffe in the uh, end credits, his n name is misspelled wrong. Uh, there was a typo, and the uh, A and the L are swapped, so it reads Wallachan. <laughs> so uh, Walken was also one of the original three, alongside Nick Nolte and Burt Reynolds, to be considered by George Lucas to play Han Solo in Star Wars. Now, Walken did wind up winning the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in the 1978 war drama The Deer Hunter, and this would make Walken the first Academy Award winner to star in a Bond film. Pretty fascinating trivia right there. So now Walken's film roles extend into the hundreds, and this would be hours long if I mentioned them all. Uh, but some of his more notable appearances were in the 1980 Western Bomb Heaven's Gate, the 1981 musical Pennies from Heaven opposite Steve Martin and Bernadette Peters, the 1983 David Cronenberg thriller The Dead Zone opposite Brooke Adams, Tom Skerritt, and Martin Sheen, uh, the 1988 Mike Nichols comedy drama Biloxi Blues, opposite Matthew Broderick. The 1992 superhero film Batman Returns, opposite Michael Keaton, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Danny DeVito. Uh, the 1993 crime film True Romance, opposite Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette. The 1993 comedy sequel Wayne's World 2, opposite Mike Myers, Dana Carvey, and Tia Carrere. Uh, an appearance in the 1994 Quentin Tarantino crime film Pulp Fiction, a voice in the 1998 animated feature Ants, the 1999 sci-fi romantic comedy Blast from the Past opposite Brendan Fraser and Sissy Spacek, the 1999 Tim Burton thriller Sleepy Hollow opposite Johnny Depp and Christina Ricci, uh, the 2002 Steven Spielberg-directed biographical crime thriller Catch Me If You Can opposite Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks, uh, the 2012 crime comedy drama Seven Psychopaths, opposite Colin Farrell and Sam Rockwell. The 2014 Clint Eastwood musical Jersey Boys, and a voice in the 2016 adventure remake The Jungle Book, among many, many, many others. His, his filmography is just astounding. Like, we would have to dedicate an entire episode to Christopher Walken just uh, if we wanted to discuss them all. So. Uh, and even then, it would probably have to be split up into parts. So. Uh, moving on now for the role of leading Bond woman Stacey Sutton, Priscilla Presley was originally cast. However, she had to bow out because of her contract with the hit TV drama Dallas. Damn, we could have had Elvis's wife as a Bond woman. So instead, they cast Tanya Roberts. 
Roberts was born Victoria Lee Bloom in 1949, although she would frequently tell everyone it was 1955. What a diva. Uh, She was born in New York City. Her father, Theodore Bloom, was called the most outstanding oral surgeon in America for his pioneering work in local anesthesia and the use of x-rays in dental care. She married psychology student Barry Roberts in 1974 and changed her name to Tanya. While he pursued a career as a screenwriter, she studied at the actor's studio with Lee Strasberg and Uta Hagen. Roberts got her start as a model in TV ads for Excedrin, Ultra Bright Toothpaste, Clairol hair care products, and Cool Ray sunglasses. She also supported herself as a dance instructor for Arthur Murray. She made her film debut in the 1975 horror film Forced Entry. In 1980, she was chosen out of 2,000 candidates to replace Shelley Hack in the fifth season of Charlie's Angels. Now, despite the hype surrounding her casting, the show was still canceled in 1981. And so she only was able to do one season on Charlie's Angels. Now, her film roles were later reduced to B-movies and TV movie with A View to a Kill being her biggest budgeted film. Uh, her other notable import performances include the 1977 biographical drama The Private Files of J. Edgar Hoover, opposite Broderick Crawford and Jose Fair, the 1982 sword and sorcery B-movie The Beastmaster, opposite Mark Singer, John Amos, and Rip Torn, the 1984 superhero bomb Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, in which she was nominated for a Razzie Award for Worst Actress, and the 1994 erotic thriller Deep Down, opposite George Siegel. Fans of the 1998 sitcom That 70s Show would most likely recognize her most of all as Midge Pinciotti appearing in 81 episodes. Now for the role of Bond's ally Sir Godfrey Tibbet, the producers cast British actor Patrick McNee. McNee was born in London in 1922. He is best known for playing Agent John Steed in the British spy series The Avengers. That's alongside some pretty notable Bond alums there. Uh, most obvious one is Diana Rigg, who is his co-star, uh, but also Honor Blackman as well. Uh, he made his first credited film debut in the 1950 adventure film The Elusive Pimpernel, opposite David Niven and Margaret Layton, and would go on to appear in other notable films, such as the 1951 Charles Dickens adaptation Scrooge, which is known as A Christmas Carol in the U.S., uh, opposite Alistair Sim. The 1979 low-budget adventure film King Solomon's Treasures, the 1981 Joe Dante horror film The Howling, the 1984 Rob Reiner mockumentary This is Spinal Tap, opposite Christopher Guest, Michael McKeon, and Harry Shearer, Uh, the 1988 horror comedy Waxwork, opposite Zach Galligan and David Warner, the 1989 B-movie sci-fi spoof Lobster Man from Mars, opposite Tony Curtis, and the 1982 horror comedy sequel Waxwork 2 Lost in Time. Uh, McNee is, again, as I mentioned, the fourth cast member of the Avengers to star in a Bond film. So, there's, you know, aside from Honor Blackman and Dinah Rigg, there was also Joanna Lumley, uh, who was in uh, the Avengers. Now, for the role of Zoran's assassin girlfriend, Mayday, the producers cast Jamaican singer-slash-model-slash-actress Grace Jones. Jones was born in Jamaica in 1948. Her family moved to Syracuse, New York, when she was a teenager. Uh, Jones is best known for her androgynous appearance and bold fashion styles. Uh, She did start her modeling career in New York before moving to Paris, France, where she worked for such notable names like Yves Saint Laurent 
and Kenzo, while also appearing on the covers of such uh, notable magazines like Elle and Vogue. Jones did decide to embark on a singing career in 1977. She secured a deal with Island Records and became a high-profile figure at New York's famed Studio 54. In the early 80s, she moved from disco toward the new wave style that was taking over, drawing in on reggae, funk, and pop as her inspirations. Several of her songs hit the top 40 in the, on the UK singles charts, including Private Life, Pull Up to the Bumper, I've Seen That Face Before, and Slave to the Rhythm. Uh, in 1982, she released a music video collection titled A One-Man Show, which earned her a Grammy nomination for Best Video Album. Now, while modeling, she also decided to embark on a film career as well. She made her film debut in the 1973 action film Gordon's War, starring Paul Winfield and directed by Ossie Davis. Her first big-budget film would be the 1984 Sword and Sorcery sequel Conan the Destroyer, opposite Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, Jones never quite became the prolific leading lady she, I'm sure she had hoped to be, starring mostly in low-budget and indie films. Uh, and again... Just like Tanya Roberts, A View to a Kill is probably her biggest budgeted film that she started. Uh, her other notable film appearances would include the 1986 horror comedy Vamp and the 1992 comedy Boomerang opposite Eddie Murphy. Now, Walter Gotell does return for the fourth time as General Gogol, and Robert Brown, Lois Maxwell, and Desmond Llewellyn all return as M, Money Penny, and Q, respectively. Uh, this would be Maxwell's final performance as Money Penny. Again, since they ended up casting a younger Bond with the next film, The Living Daylights, they probably felt that it would be wrong to try and have him hit on someone who's essentially the same age as his mom or grandma or something like that. So, uh, so yes, this was Lois Maxwell's final performance as Money Pennies. Now, John Glenn returned to direct for the third consecutive time. And Richard Maybaum did return to script the film. Uh, now, John Barry returned to score a Bond film for the 10th time, and he also helped compose the theme song. Now, for the title song, the producers chose famed British new wave band Duran Duran. Uh, the band formed in 1978, but rose to prominence in the 1980s. The name derives from their name derives from the character Dr. Durand Durand, in the 1968 Jane Fonda sci-fi film, Barbarella. They were innovators of the music video and were a leading band in the MTV-driven second British invasion of the 80s. Uh, their first major hit was Girls on Film in 1981, but other recognizable hits include 1982's Hungry Like the Wolf and Rio, 1983's The Reflex, and 1993's Come Undone. They won two Grammys in 1984 for Best Music Video, short form, for it was uh, between for girls on film and hungry like the wolf as well as best music video long form for their self-titled music video compilation their review to a kill theme song is the only bond theme to date to hit number one on the billboard hot 100 charts take that adele now there's a very funny anecdote on how they got chosen to perform the theme song for the movie uh bassist john taylor saw producer cubby broccoli at a party and approached him Taylor, who was a lifelong Bond fan and was drunk at the time, asked Cubby, when are you going to get someone decent to do one of your theme songs? Cubby liked his approach, and the rest is history. Now, Duran Duran is actually the first band to perform a Bond theme. It was all done by solo artists before, so it took us 
to 85 to get that achieved. So pretty fascinating. We'll talk more about how much I love that song in a little bit. Now, A View to a Kill was filmed on location in Iceland, Paris, France, London, England, and San Francisco, California. Interiors were shot at Pinewood Studios in London. However, they weren't able to shoot a majority of the film on the 007 stage as originally planned due to a tragedy. In June 1984, several leftover canisters of petrol that were used during the filming of Ridley Scott's 1985 fantasy film Legend caused the stage to burn to the ground. The stage was rebuilt and reopened in January 1985 and was actually renamed Albert R. Broccoli's 007 stage. Uh, and then they were able to film some final footage uh, there as well. Now let's take a look at the plot. We open on a snow and ice-covered landscape in Siberia. Russian helicopters fly overhead. They appear to be looking for something. We then see a man skiing. He stops and pulls out what appears to be a compact metal detector. It's James Bond. He reveals himself by lowering his hood, and we can see him through his uh, ski goggles and stuff. He stops when the beeping increases. He digs in the snow with his hands and uncovers a frozen body. The Russian helicopter spots Bond and alerts the Russian military. They set out on snowmobiles and skis. Bond looks through the pockets of the body and finds a locket. Inside the locket, a microchip. The Russians spot him and start shooting. Bond skis away as snow collapses. Bond eludes them for a moment. He takes out a grappling hook and sets it near the edge of a snowy ravine. He skis up behind a Russian on a snowmobile and hooks the other end of the rope to him. The rope goes taut and the man gets yanked off the snowmobile. Bond quickly jumps on and knocks off his skis. The helicopter pursues him, firing machine guns. The snowmobile gets hit and Bond jumps off before it explodes. Bond grabs one of the snowmobile's runners and turns it into a makeshift snowboard. Bond careens up, flying in the air, knocking over Pursue. It's at this moment that we get the first dose of a shitstorm we have coming. Out of the blue, the Beach Boys, California Girls, starts playing on the soundtrack as Bond outskis the Russian military. I mean, what the hell were they thinking? I mean, this is the sort of thing we would expect from a sports movie or a comedy, but not a James Bond movie. Plus, it's not even the original Beach Boys version. It's some halfway decent cover. For shame. So, while Bond outskis the Russians to California girls, we see him nearly beef it after landing a big jump and see that the Russian military suck at skiing. We seriously see one skier randomly lose his balance and tumble down the hill with a comical scream to boot. So Bond then skis down the hill and skims across a small pond. The skiers try to do the same and fail miserably. Bond abandons the snowboard and hoofs it on foot. The helicopter still chases him, firing away. Bond ducks behind a snowdrift and peeks back up, firing a flare at the chopper. It hits inside and smokes, causing the chopper to careen out of control. It bounces off the ground and crashes into an iceberg. Suddenly, another iceberg has a hatch pop up, bearing the Union Jack flag. Bond runs up to it and climbs in. It's a boat disguised as an iceberg. So Agent Jones says she's sending a signal to M. Bond asks for her to put the iceberg boat on automatic, and it takes off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nothing suspicious about that. An iceberg going 50 miles per hour. So Bond asks for a couple glasses as he takes off his snow gear on a comfy sofa, and she says there's some in the upper rack. 
Bon gives this creepy look again and accelerates the boat. Wait, why is the throttle all the way over there by the couch instead of by, oh, I don't know, the steering wheel? So the sudden jolt causes Agent Jones to fall on the bed where Bond makes his move. He starts unzipping her parka and tells her it's five days to Alaska. So then we then cut to Bond entering M's office, and he spots a sun hat on the coat hook. He looks at it confusingly. I mean, nobody wears hats in the office anymore. Money Penny enters and looks happy to see Bond, saying, Thank goodness he's here. Bond comments her on her old lady dress, and she gives a twirl to show it off. Bond says it's very nice, but isn't it a bit over the top for the office? Money Penny ignores his response and says that she's been trying to reach him all morning, asking where he's been. Bond says rest and recreation, giving her this wide-eyed zombie stare again. Seriously, did Bond have like a Botox injection and is now completely incapable of blinking or relaxing his eyes? Or did he stub his toe and he's trying to hide the immense pain? He adds that the trip to Siberia took a lot out of him. Moneypenny says his dedication to the job is commendable. And comes on the intercom and tells Moneypenny to omit the usual pleasantries as they're pressed for time. Eh, sorry, Moneypenny, your screen time is up. You'll have to continue this pointless conversation off screen. So Bond does say he'll fill her in later and goes into Inter M's office, but Money Penny stops him, motioning toward her hat that he has in his hands. He tosses it back to her and she catches it, stroking it. All I have in this lonely world are my hats, that she's what she's probably thinking at this moment. So Bond enters and Q is playing with his latest toy, a remote controlled robot on wheels. Bond greets everyone in the room. M, the Minister of Defense, Frederick Gray, and Q, and then jokingly asks Q if that's his new pet. Q gets annoyed and says that if he bothered reading any of his memos, he would have noticed that this is a prototype of a highly sophisticated surveillance machine. Yes, because nothing says stealth like a 20-pound gray hunk of metal on wheels with big camera eyes. So M breaks up the bickering by recommending they get on with the briefing and asks Q to begin. Q sets down his toy and pulls a microchip out of his pocket, holding it up. He says it's a silicon-integrated chip, the essential part of all modern computers. M sighs and scoffs that we're all aware of the usefulness of the microchip. Q then moves on, stating that until now, all microchips were susceptible to damage to the intense magnetic pulse of a nuclear explosion. Uh, yeah, along with everything else in the path of a nuclear explosion. M says that would be totally defenseless. Q adds that's why one of their defense contractors came up with this microchip, holding up the same one he was showing before. He adds that it's impervious to an EMP. Q then flips on a computer and asks him to watch the microcomparator as he compares it with the same chip Bond recovered off the body of 003 in Siberia. At this moment, Q places the chip on a scanner and their circuit board appears on the screen. They align one on top of the other and show that they are 100% identical. M says that the KGB must have a pipeline to the research company. Gray adds that the company was acquired by another called Zorin Industries. Now, it should be noted that this film does contain another first for the franchise. It contains a disclaimer that appears at the beginning of the film. Now, the Zorin Industries company in the movie is obviously made up. However, there was a real-life digital technology company similarly named Zoran Corporation that operate in the U.S., and they didn't like that the fake company in the film sounded similar to theirs. So as the writers failed to do a copyright check prior to creating it, 
The producers agreed to add a disclaimer reading that neither the name Zorin nor any other name or character in this film is meant to portray a real company or actual person. And of course, this was in order to avoid legal troubles. So anyway, he adds that he's a staunch anti-communist with friends in the government. Bond says that, with all due respect, the leak did occur after Zorn bought the company. Emma agrees and says that's exactly why he decided to go ahead and launch an investigation. Gray complies, but asks that they be discreet about this. Bond? Discreet? <laughs> Clearly you don't know him that well. So they agree, and Gray leaves. M says he has 35 minutes to get properly dressed. Bond looks confused. We then cut to a horse track at the Ascot Racecourse, to be exact. Bond and M look like they're putting on the Ritz with top coats, tails, and top hats. Q and Moneypenny are there to give them added screen time. Uh, Moneypenny's all excited as she's finally doing something outside of her office. I mean, seriously, this is the first time since 1971's Diamonds Are Forever that we see Moneypenny outside. She's cheering on a horse she bet on named Fluke. She's about to say, move your ass, but stops herself and instead asks which one is the gray horse. Q says it's Pegasus, Zoran's horse. I did get a chuckle out of this scene as the camera starts on Q and Moneypenny watching the race, and as it pans out, we see Bond and M, but they're looking in the complete opposite direction with their binoculars, presumably searching for Zoran. So while everyone's watching the race, they're watching the audience, the crowd. So I always thought that was... That was a good kind of humorous moment there. Light comedy. So anyway, Bond spots him and asks if that's Zorn with the cane. M says yes and explains he was born in Dresden and that he had fled from East Germany in the 60s as a French passport speaks at least five languages. M adds he's now the talk of the town with Bond quipping that it's the old Reds to Riches story. M states that he made his first fortune in oil and gas trading and that he now deals in electronics and high tech. Bond spots a woman wearing what can only be described as red curtains and asks who she is. And says they don't know much about her, only that she's an American. She's never far from it, and her name is Mayday. Bond quips that she's dressed for the occasion. Back to the race, Moneypenny continues cheering on Fluke, who is about to win, when Pegasus catches up and wins the race at the last second. Moneypenny tears up her ticket in disgust. Zorn and Mayday are glad-handed on their way out, as another man dressed to the nine looks on, shaking his head in disgust. Bond and M approach him. The man says that it's unbelievable. All his years of training, he's never seen a horse run so fast in the last furlong. M introduces Bond to the man, Sir Godfrey Tibbet, who uh, works for... Uh, the government, I guess. And if that's the case, why was he separated? Why wasn't he sitting with them the whole time? Well, they watch as Zorn accepts the winner's cup for the race. M thinks it's luck. Tibbet says it could be more than luck. Bond asks if he thinks it's fixed. Tibbet says, your guess is as good as mine. He adds that the French jockey club have hired a detective friend of his to look into it. We then see Pegasus going apeshit as Mayday tries to calm the horse down. She flexes a muscle and yanks on the reins to keep Pegasus from getting out of control. Q quips that she must take a lot of vitamins. Bond adds that perhaps Pegasus does too. Bond also says that he should meet this detective friend, and M asks Tibbet that he'll set it up. Bond then turns to Moneypenny and asks her to collect this for her, handing her the ticket. She's looked shocked as he picked Pegasus to win. 
Suddenly, Bond is in Paris, having lunch with a random person. Why? What led him here? There's no discussion that led him here. I feel like there's an entire scene missing between him leaving the track and randomly being Paris with some random dude. Which turns out that this random guy is the detective friend Tibbet was telling about, but the, the transition is so clunky. Bond gives his wide-eyed, I hope nobody noticed that I faulted look, as he confirms with the guy that the Surete has no information about Zorn before he came from East Germany. Friend says that he saw his dossier himself, but even the Surete's documents can be interpreted. Then the lights dim and a man comes on stage introducing Dominique and the Enchanted Papillons. Just French for butterflies for that uh, don't speak French. A woman comes on stage and starts whistling in tune while fake butterflies fly around her, being held up by strings from people up in the balcony. Other fake butterflies appear to be thrown into a fan from below the foot of the stage as they'll be tossed up in the air. The friend quips that perhaps they should add this butterfly to their collection, grinning smugly. Oh god, this guy poorly attempts to be suave like Bond, and it's almost borderline comedic. Bond then asks how Zorn's horses beat those with far superior bloodlines. The friend says that it's a mystery. Bond asks if he's using drugs, and the friend says that nothing showed up in the test. Then sees someone approach one of the butterfly handlers and karate chops him out cold. Given the silhouetted shape, I can guarantee it's Mayday. Although they try and keep it cloaked in mystery. So Dominique, the singer, believes that something is up as the butterflies start flipping wild wildly. The man adds that Zorin will be holding his annual sales at his stud farm near Paris. He says the security is formidable, but the key to the mystery is there. He states that I... Achille Aubergine intend to find it. We get a close-up of Mayday's wild eyes hidden beneath a cloak, and the butterfly gets wildly swung at Aubergine and gets stabbed in the neck by it. Yeah, well, this is a first for a Bond movie, Death by Fishing Lure. Also, the suspense of the film is completely withered away by revealing Mayday, especially that close-up there, her eyes are indistinguishable, rather than just having them talking when the butterfly hits them. I mean, they could have this scene could have played out much more suspenseful. And actually might have gotten a jump out of the audience, but no, we saw it coming the entire time. So he falls face first into a soup dead. Now, okay. I really have to question Mayday's accuracy of hitting this guy's jugular, given her position and what she's using as a weapon. I mean, seriously, the chances of her hitting his jugular on the first shot are like a billion to one. So people gather, and Bond checks his pulse. He spots the assailant taken off, tells an onlooker that there's a fly in the soup, and takes off. Well, that makes no sense, and it's only there, I presumably because so that we can say that he could say that cliche. Mayday runs up to the Eiffel Tower and knocks over some French officers running up the stairs. Bond chases after her, shooting at her. She takes the pole that she used to kill Aubergine and whips it at Bond. The wire gets wrapped around him, and she yanks on it. This causes Bond to flip up in the air, nearly going over the railing. For no apparent reason, other than keeping the main character alive, as she had the perfect opportunity to kill Bond, she throws the pole at him and continues running up the stairs. Bond untangles his legs from the wire and continues the chase. Mayday stops at the observation deck. Damn, they're fast. I mean, it only took them minutes to run up the entire 1,083-foot structure. And they didn't break a sweat. 
So anyway, Mayday stops, removes a cloak that was hiding her face. No surprise as they attempt a dramatic reveal of who she is. She climbs up to the railing and jumps off, opening a parachute and floating down towards the same. It's funny, when she removes the cloak and when she jumps off, there's no evidence of her wearing a parachute. So either it magically appears or she had one hidden in her ass. So Bond spots the elevator coming down and leaps on top, or obvious stunt double moment right there. Bond gets to the ground and runs up to a 1984 Renault 11 taxi and tells the driver to follow that parachute. Driver shouts at him in French, probably translates to, Get away from me, you singly Englishman. And Bond yanks the driver out and steals the taxi, taking pursuit. The man shouts, Whoa, my God! And starts to chase after it as Bond takes off. You ignorant bastard, Bond gave you a fare, and he thought it would be better to shout at him. And honestly, the, the taxi driver gives a strange reaction before taking off, like he's purposely mugging for the camera. He does this like comical like thing where he cocks his arms and before taking off, running after it. Oh my god, that's so stupid. So Bond swerves to avoid a crowd and goes backwards down some stairs. He does a reverse 180 at the landing, then continues down the stairs. The taxi driver still continues to shout about his car, grimacing in disbelief. Bond keeps his eye on Mayday in the sky as he heads down the road. He counters a truck filled with kayaks and ramps off it, which is a conveniently looking ramp. I mean, literally looks like a ramp. So he ramps off it, landing on the roof of a bus, taking out some luggage and empty cardboard boxes. He lands safely back on the ground and continues pursuit. He ducks as he crashes through a parking lot control arm, shearing off the roof of the car. He continues... Three, two, one. He continues pursuit, weaving in and out of traffic when a car hits him, ripping off the back end of the car. I always heard that Renault was a quality car, but maybe I was wrong. I mean, this one appears to be made out of tinfoil. So Bond, showing his true persistence, continues driving the half a car, another obvious stunt double moment there, but stops near the Arc de Triomphe. A wedding reception is going on in a boat that passes underneath the bridge. He spots Mayday landing on it. Bond jumps down and goes through the roof, landing on the wedding cake to the shock of the bride and groom. Another obvious stunt double number three there. Wait, wait a minute, I think that's a dummy they used. Then he gets up completely clean. He just landed on a cake, a wedding cake, and gets up without a speck of frosting or cake on him, cake crumbs or anything. And he hands the top tier to the bride, congratulating them both. Bond makes his way through the crowd and spots Mayday jumping into a speedboat and taking off. Zorin is driving. At the Paris police station, Bond is bailed out by M, who scolds them as they drive off in a 1981 Mercedes-Benz SCL 6.9 limousine. Tibbet is in the front seat. M states that this operation was supposed to be discreet. Well, it's not like he can prevent the bad guys from disrupting things. He adds that it, all it took was six million francs in damages, but violating most of the Napoleonic Code. Bond's defense is that he felt it was important to identify the assassin, and then asks what he learned from Aubergine before his untimely demise. He says that he only learned that, that Zorn is going to be having an auction at a stud farm outside Paris, and adds that he should be there. He asks Tibbet if he can take care of that. Tibbet says he thinks he can arrange an invitation. So Bond and Tibbet arrive to Zorin's estate in a 1955 Rolls-Royce Silver Cloud II. They pull up to the front where they're greeted. A woman calls out his name as Mr. St. John Smith. Bond corrects her. 
Now, Roger Moore actually constantly corrects everyone who says his name throughout this entire time here. And for some really pronounces, it's St. John Smith, or excuse me, St. John Smythe. But for some reason, he weirdly pronounces it St. John Smythe. It actually gets more and more un unintentionally funny every time he says it. Bond is greeted by a man who introduces himself as Scarpine, saying he's head of security. He welcomes Bond and informs him that the preview has already begun at the main stables. And wouldn't you know it, a man like Scarpine, of course, has a scar on his face. I mean, was he born with that scar on his face? And his parents decide, hey, we'll call you Scarpine. <laughs> Maybe it's a nickname, we'll never know. We just know his name is Scarpine. So Bond asks if that's it, pointing to a plain-looking building, and Scarpine says that that's the servants' quarters, then states that they're over there, pointing to a large estate where horses can be seen trotted around. Bond heads in with Scarpine and looks at some horses. Scarpine hands him a catalog of the sales, and Bond asks if the Ithacus cult is going to be here. Scarpine says, you mean the full brother of Pegasus, to which Bond says yes. Scarpine says he's the highlight of the sales and will be shown last that they expect him to fetch over $3 million. At the parking area, Tibbet is posing as the chauffeur. He spots an elderly man guiding Pegasus to a stable in the back and heads over to investigate. Tibbet watches as Pegasus is led into a stable but hides when he sees some hands coming. After they leave with the old man, Tibbet heads into the stable with Pegasus nowhere to be seen. Bond is heading back to the car when Scarpine approaches him again, telling him that Mr. Zorn has been unavoidably detained, but looks forward to meeting him. Tibbet approaches, and Bond holds, scolds him for running off. Tibbet apologizes, and Scarpine says that he can stay in the servants' quarters. Bond says that should be more than adequate for him. They drive up to the main house, where Bond is greeted by a woman who introduces herself as Jenny Flex. Miss Flex says she'll get a porter, but Bond says that Tibbet can take care of them, and basically tells him to hurry as he heads inside. Tibbet angrily throws down Bond's bags as he takes them out of the trunk. As they walk up the stairs, Bond tells Miss Flex that he takes she spends much time in the saddle, to which she says yes, that she loves an early morning ride. Bond quips that he's an early riser himself. Ugh. So stupid, so dumb. Bond then tells Tibbet to hurry up and stop wheezing. As they go into Bond's room, they briefly pass Mayday, who wears a bizarre hairdo that honestly could only be outdone by Ruby Rod from The Fifth Element. She stops and glances at him as they walk by before leaving herself. They enter the room and Bond tells Tibbet to stop panting and start unpacking. He then offers to help, taking the umbrella off the top of his bags. I mean, if this is supposed to be funny, it's not. It just makes Bond's cover come off as a bit of a dick. Miss Flex tells Bond that the reception is at six. Bond turns to Tibbet and starts berating him, but this becomes part of the ruse uh, as they start scanning for bugs. Tibbet uses a bug scanner disguised as an Orelco electric razor while Bond pulls out a tape recorder. Over in a control room, Scarpine enters. A man listening on the rooms tells Scarpine that a man named Mr. Farris told his trainer that he would go to a million on the Ithacus cult. Scarpine likes the sound of that and asks if there's anything on St. John Smythe. And the monitor says, no, not about the sales, but he would hate to be his valet. He presses a button on the speakers so you, Scarpine can overhear it, and you he can hear Bond browbeating Tibbet. 
In Bond's room, Tibbet spots the bug sitting on top of the lamp. Bond presses play on the tape recorder, and the beratement continues, allowing them to be elsewhere. They head to the balcony, and Tibbet asks if they have to keep up this ruse when they're alone. Bond says that a good cover becomes almost second nature, then asks about Pegasus disappearing. Tibbet says that one minute he was in the stall, and the next minute he's not. They spot a helicopter landing with the Zorin Industries logo on it. A woman gets out and greets Zorin. Tibbet also spots the elderly man he saw with the horse and points him out to Bond. As they see the woman walk in with Zorin, Tibbet wonders if she's another wealthy owner. Bond says he doesn't know, but she would definitely be worth a closer inspection. Tibbet reminds him that he's that they're on a mission. Bond reminds Tibbet that on a mission he's required to sacrifice himself. So at the dinner reception, Bond spots the woman and follows her. However, Mayday spots him and corners him, preventing him from going to that part of the house. Bond heads outside and spots Zorn and the woman at his desk talking. Bond puts on some sunglasses, then slides a switch underneath the lenses, which removes the glare from the glass. He sees Zorn writing out a check and handing it to the woman. Scarpine interrupts him and asks if he's enjoying the party, to which Bond says yes, that it's going to be a good turnout before walking away. Bond sneaks into Zorn's office and picks the lock on his desk. He flips open Zorn's checkbook and places a cigarette case over it. He moves a slider across and back. He opens it up and it created a facsimile of the check, words and all. Wow, what a convenient gadget to have that seems to have only one singular purpose to copy checks, as the paper inside is the exact size of a standard check. I mean, how many times do you think Bond would have to use this? This is, this is probably the only time. Plus, he's, I'm glad you know, Zorn's not using those, uh, those business checks, because those things are like twice the size of a normal check. So he sees that the check was written for $5 million to an S suffer. Outside, Zorn walks around greeting people. He approaches a man who asks if main strike is all set. Zorn says, we'll know after the 22nd. Bond exits and bumps into the old man. Uh, he's balding, elderly man with a monocle. Bond says he was looking for the bar, and the man offers to show him. Bond introduces himself as Saint James St. Sinchin Smythe, and the man introduces himself as Dr. Carl Mortner. They approach the bar outside, and Dr. Mortner introduces Bond to the man Zorn was speaking to a moment ago. He introduces himself as Bob Conley. Bond asks if he's a trainer, and Conley says, Hell, I can't even ride. But before staying, he's in the oil business. Bond asks if it's in Texas, but Conley says it's San Francisco, and that he helps Zant handle Mr. Zorn's business up there. Bond lifts a glass of champagne to his mouth and quickly takes a picture of the man with the camera that's hidden in a ring. Ha! That's the first ring camera. Sorry about that. Uh, anyway, Mr. Conley and his lady leave as Zorn spots Bond talking to Dr. Mortner. Bond asks the doctor if he's a doctor of medicine, and Dr. Mortner says he's Zorn's breathing consultant. Bond says then... Three, two, one. Bond says then he can let him in on a little secret, asking how he can breed bloodlines that other experts would consider inferior. Dr. Mortner explains that selective breeding is important, but more important is conditioning and desire. Bond asks if he's talking about horses or people. Mortner explains his principle applies to all. Bond quickly takes a picture with his ring camera. Zorn approaches and finally introduces himself to Bond slash St. John Smythe. He tells Dr. Mortner that he's wanted at the stables, and Mortner leaves. Bond congratulates Zorn on the magnificent stables. 
They were built in the 16th century by a man who believed he would be reincarnated as a horse. Zorn says he's been in Thorbirds long, and Bond says no, that he's a dotty old aunt passed away and left him some stables, so he thought it'd be fun to raise and breed horses. Bond asks if he rides, and Zorn explains that he's happiest in his saddle. Bond then asks about fishing, Flycaster. Zorn smiles and seemingly dodges the question, stating he's neglecting his other guests before leaving. Bond spots Miss Sutton over by a walkway and approaches her, introducing himself and pouring her a glass of champagne. For some reason, he adds, I'm English. <laughs> As if that alone is supposed to impress her. Miss Sutton flatly replies, I never would have guessed. Bond asks if she's buying or selling. She replies, selling? Bond says, horses. She says she's not interested in horses, and Bond tells her she's in the wrong place. Zoran sees Bond talking to Miss Sutton and tells Mayday to get her away from him. Mayday says she's sure she's seen him somewhere. Uh, yeah, in the hallway, in just a few moments ago. Mayday heads toward Bond, and Zorin tells Scarpine to have security pay extra attention to her. As Bond still attempts to charm Miss Sutton, and Miss Sutton attempts to deny his advances, Mayday steps in between them, tells her that the helicopter leaves in 20 minutes. Well, that's just rude. Bond offers to walk her there, but Mayday says it's not necessary, and they leave. So later that evening, Tibbet sneaks into the paddock after Dr. Mortner leaves. He approaches the stable and looks for a hidden door. We see a hand rest on the stable wall and grab Tibbet, putting a hand over Tibbet's mouth. It's Bond. God, this false suspense is so stupid. They're allies here. Why did they tell each other that they were going to be doing the exact same thing and just arrange to meet there? And if, if that was the case, and it happened off screen, you'd think... You know, Tibbet would be walking around whispering, Bond, Bond, are you there? James, James, are you there? Tell him so. Whatever. You know, something to indicate that he's trying to meet him there and trying to look for him or something like that. And then Bond pops out and tells him to be quiet. You know, that sort of thing. But, you know, got to play up the false suspense. So, anyway, Bond says he believes he's looking for this, pointing to a button. He presses it and the stable lowers. Bond says it's quite a letdown before hopping on. They head to an underground room and flip the switches on. It's a lab. Bond and Tibbet look around. Bond sees x-rays of a horse's legs, and Tibbet checks on Pegasus. Bond grabs a stethoscope and cracks into a locked fridge. Tibbet examines a bandage on the horse's leg and says he's just had surgery. Bond finds a vial and says that, it, that explains how Pegasus won, saying that Dr. Moulton must have planted a microchip into Pegasus. He holds up the vial and says that these microchips are programmed to inject an additional natural horse steroid. Tibbet wonders how. Bond says that the injection must be controlled by a remote-controlled transmitter, one that's small enough to fit in the tip of a jockey's whip, or a cane. Wow! Bond is a greater detective than Sherlock Holmes. I mean, he deduced all of that just by looking at a vial in a fridge. So... Anyway, they suddenly hear the stable elevator moving and quickly put everything back, shut off the lights, and hide. They find themselves in another room. It's a packaging warehouse which, where crates marked with the Zorn Industries logo are being sealed. Bond looks inside one of the crates and sees thousands of bags of microchips. He picks one up and says that there's a world surplus of microchips and that Zorn is holding them. Uh, no, he's making them. They then hear men coming down and hide. The men walk around and Bond and Tibbet jump out and attack. Again, nice job being discreet. 
Sometimes stealth means staying hidden until they leave, you know. Tibbet gets stuck with the burlier man, who quickly knocks him into some empty crates. Bond takes on the other man and throws him over his shoulder into a crate where it's sealed, leaving only the man's hand sticking out. He takes on the burly man and hits him in the face, but the man picks up Bond. Bond quickly presses the button to shut off the conveyor belt, and the man goes to punch Bond, but he moves out of the way, and the guy punches his fist through a crate. Several other crates fall on top of him. Then a really bizarre thing happens here. We see the guy laying down on the conveyor belt and Bond turning it on. I mean, I realize, I guess, it's supposed to look like Bond is placing him on there, but you can clearly see the guy laying himself down, and Bond just casually presses the button like, yeah, let me get that for you. Then the guy lies perfectly still as a crate lid is placed on top of him and strapped it down. You can even see him lift his head up before it gets strapped down. So it's it's a very strange, very strange situation here. So Tibbet apologizes for not being much help. Bond says that's alright before quipping that it's all wrapped up. We then cut to Zorin's gym. Mayday and Zorin are sparring in karate. Mayday knocks him down and gives him pointers, telling him to keep his guard up and retain his balance. We then cut to the warehouse, where a man is calculating the crates. He spots a man's muffled screams and a hand wagging out of the crate and looks perplexed. Then we go back to the gym, where Mayday pins Zorn again. Zorn angrily answers, saying he didn't want to be disturbed. The man on the line informs him that there was a break-in at the warehouse. Zorn advises the man to put security on full alert. Zorn then tells Mayday they should see where Mr. St. John Smythe is. Bond tries to sneak back, but Zorn and Mayday get to his room before him. They say it's empty, and suddenly... Mayday has her memory jog. She says he's the man in the Eiffel Tower. Now, how come suddenly she recalls it after looking at an empty room? It's not like she saw something that would, you know, jog her memory or, you know, help recall it. Zorn says they must find him, and Mayday says she'll get dressed. She enters her room and sees Bond lying in her bed. Bond says he's been waiting for her, and that he's been wanting to take her to take care of him. Personally. Mayday looks at Zorn and encourages her to take him up on the offer, and she enters. She disrobes and walks over, lying down with Bond. Now, there's a funny anecdote about this scene that Roger Moore laid out in his autobiography, My Word is My Bond. He stated that when the first shot, they first shot this scene, uh, when Grace Jones disrobes, she was wearing a strap-on dildo, and she ran and jumped on top of Moore. Now, Moore wasn't amused by the gag, even though he was known for pranking on the set himself, and this escalated an on-set feud between them. And uh, I guess Miss Jones found it hilarious and laugh, was laughing for like 10 minutes. And so, so. Everyone has their own ways of humoring it. So anyway, she gets on top of him, and they have sex. Over in the underground lab, Zorin, Dr. Morton, and Scarpine look around. Dr. Mortner opens up his secured fridge and looks around. Zorin asks, does everything is here? And Morton says, yeah, yeah, but notices a vial out of place. Zorin then tells Scarpine to have Mrs. St. John Smythe brought to his study first thing in the morning. Next morning, Zorin greets Bond in his study and asks if he slept well. Bond says he was restless, but eventually got off. God, nobody describes sleeping like that. We all know what you're talking about, Bond. Zorn moves to his desk and tells Bond, there's a progeny index on the computer. He examines a, it's a, it's a compilation of thoroughbred bloodlines. He had said he thought it might help him in selecting a purchase. 
He says that he would want a stallion for breeding. Bon says a stallion sounds right. Zorin then randomly says, I found a computer. Zorin types in and requests information identity of subject. Claims to be English. James St. John Smythe. Who's he requesting this to? A profile of Bond pops up on the screen. Zorin says they have several horses that would be perfect for him. The screen says that the subject is James Bond. Usually armed. Extremely dangerous. Zorin slightly chuckles at the sight of this information. Zorin then asks Bond if he would prefer stamina or speed. Bond says both would be ideal. A big text appears on the screen that reads, License to Kill. Where is he getting this information? He then exits out of the screen and tells Bond that he has the perfect horse for him. He adds that it's time for his morning ride and invites Bond to join him to try out the horse. Bond accepts and says he'll meet him in 30 minutes so he can change. Outside, Tibbet has finished washing the car. Bond approaches him, tapping him on the ass for no apparent reason, and hands him the copy of the check he took yesterday. He tells Tibbet to go into town and get that copy to M so he can put a trace on it. Tibbet asks what he should tell him if they want to know where he's going. Bond says, tell him you have to get the car washed. Tibbet looks disgusted and angry and picks up the dirty wash water and throws it on top of the rolls. So we then spot Dr. Mortner putting the transmitter in Zorin's cane. Then Tibbet approaches the gate and Mayday is there, staring him down. He says he's going to town to get the car washed, but she doesn't budge. He gets out of the gate, but it opens himself. When he turns around, Mayday has disappeared. Well, if that doesn't tip you off that she's in the car, I don't know what will. He gets in and drives off. Bond is introduced to his horse, a stallion with a wild side. Bond says he's a bit spirited and asks his name. Zorin says it's Inferno. Bond gets on and has to work to control Inferno as they take off. Tibbet enters the car wash and spots Miss Flex parking at the nearby gas station in her 1984 Renault Fuego. She keeps an eye on Tibbet while pretending to look at the car's engine. As the rolls goes into the car wash, we see Mayday's head pop up from the back seat. Firstly, how did she not make a single noise getting into the car, especially when she was only when he was only out of the car for no more than 10 seconds. Secondly, how did he not notice her lanky 5'8 frame lying down in the back seat? So we see her reach around and strangle Tibbet as the rollers go down over the windshield. I'm sorry, but wouldn't it be considered vehicular sacrilege to take a Rolls-Royce through an automatic car wash? So at the track, Bond inquires about the other riders. Someone says that having extra men race with them is more realistic training. Bond examines the track and realizes it's a steeplechase. He exclaims that he prefers cross-country to steeplechase. Someone says he'll make him a proposition. He'll give him that colt gratis if he stays this course. Now, I'm no expert on horses. I have friends that do that. But I did learn a thing or two about them from the Marx Brothers movie A Day at the Races. And I do know this, there are two distinct differences between a steeplechase horse and a flat race horse. And those horses that are, are trained based on what type of race they're going to be racing in. For example, a steeplechase horse won't run as fast as one trained to do a flat race because their legs have worked out more than their stamina. So you can't just put any old horse and say, oh yeah, it's going to be a steeplechase because there might be a horse out there that doesn't jump as high but can run incredibly fast. So it's not a steeplechase horse. Bond manages to get away, knocking one off his horse. Another goon presses a button, and the fence bar is raised. Bond's horse leaps over it as Bond ducks, going in between the bars while others smack right into it. Bond catches up to Zorn and passes him. 
Zorn presses the button on his case, triggering the steroid injection in Inferno and causing him to go nuts. Bond barely manages to control him as the horse leaps over the fence and off the track. Bond races through the woods as Zorn, Scarpine, and the others chase after. Bond spots the Rolls driving by and tells Tibbet to keep moving. He jumps off the horse and onto the Rolls and is about to tell Tibbet to get out of there when he spots Mayday driving, wearing Tibbet's hat for some reason, and Tibbet dead in the back seat. Mayday has a gun on him. The car pulls over and Bond checks Tibbet's pulse. Scarpine walks up to him and pats him down before pulling a gun on him. Zorn says, you lost, 007. Now, wait a minute. How does he know his 00 number? That didn't show up on the computer profile. Bond says that killing Tibbet was a mistake. Zorn says he's about to make, same, make the same mistake twice. Bond says that the department knows he's here. If anything would have happened to him, they would retaliate. Zorn scoffs to, if you're the best they've got, then they'd probably try and cover up your incompetence. Bond says that won't happen, and Zorn laughs, telling Bond he amuses him. Bond is then knocked out by Scarpine and thrown in the car as Zorn gets in and drives away with Mayday. Miss Flex watches on. I mean, seriously, what is the point of this character? We know absolutely nothing about her and what she does, other than that brief interlude she had with Bond earlier. As much as I like the actress who played her, Allison Duty, who you may best recognize as playing Dr. Schneider in the Bond alum-heavy Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, this character really contributes nothing to the plot. I mean, it's, 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 it almost feels like there were scenes involving her that were deleted and they just kept in bits. I mean, you see her throughout the film, but she's always in the background. She, she never, her conversation with Bond is really the only time she speaks. I mean, honestly, you could write out this character completely and it wouldn't affect the plot at all. So anyway, Mayday and Zorin drive to a lake where Mayday pushes the car and the car sinks and Bond awakens. He tries to open the door. Uh, we just saw the window was open earlier because we saw air escape through the bubbles and stuff like that. So he could have just swam out the window. So he manages to open the door once the pressure equalizes and he gets out. He uses air from the tires to keep oxygen in his lungs while he stays underwater until they leave. Zorn and Mayday are picked up in a 1984 Range Rover Classic and take off. Back at his chateau, Zorn watches as Pegasus runs laps around the track. General Gogol appears and greets Zorn. Zorn smiles and says that the meeting is ill-advised. It should be noted that if you look in the background, you can see actor Dolph Lundgren in his film debut, playing one of Gogol's security men. Lundgren was dating Grace Jones at the time and was offered the bit part while visiting on set, as one of the extras wasn't able to work that day. Lundgren, of course, would go on to make a name for himself later that same year as the juiced-up Russian Ivan Drago in Rocky IV. So, Gogol says it's necessary since he refuses to answer his control. Zorn asks him to get to the point. Gogol says he disregarded procedure as he did not request the approval before eliminating 007. Well, that explains how he got the information. He's working for the KGB and he probably had someone on the inside that fed him that through the computer. But... Remember that thing, um, this is, okay, let's think back. Remember that thing we did, that was discussed in The Spy Who Loved Me about M and Gogol agreeing for the KGB and MI6 to partner up in order to improve Anglo-Soviet relations? Whatever happened to that? It's like, all, uh, randomly, they're just back to being enemies. I mean, in the last film, Octopussy, you know, they were, you know, almost uh, like they were on the same side. They were They had the same goal, you know, sort of thing. And it's been like that for like pretty much the last few films 
they haven't been enemies. They've just been like distant allies, I guess you'd say. But uh, all that's thrown out the window, I guess. So anyway, Google adds that uh, reprisals might jeopardize ongoing operations. Zorn gets up and shouts at Google, saying that you jeopardized my operation. You let the British penetrate the Siberian Research Center. Gogol agrees that he that was regrettable. He adds that his racing activities are attracting unwanted attention, but what's more disturbing is his unauthorized commercial ventures, and they cannot tolerate them. Zorin counters saying that the issue is irrelevant, and he's made new associations. He says, you know, I no longer consider myself a KGB agent. One of the security men states that we trained you, we financed you, Asked, which would you be without them? A biological experiment? A physiological freak? Zoran stops laughing, getting upset at that last jab. Mayday picks the man up over his head, and the guards pull their guns. Gogol shouts, enough of this! And asks everyone to control themselves. Gogol then turns to Zoran and says that he will come back to him as no one leaves the KGB, and Mayday kind of throws down the gun. So we... Then cut to a boardroom where Zorn meets with several industrialists and millionaires. Zorn starts off by saying that for centuries, alchemists have tried to make gold from base metals. Today, we make microchips from silicon, he says while dipping his hand into a jar full of silicon. He says it's just common sand, but far better than gold. Eh, not really. Picks up a jar full of microchips and mentions over the years they've had a profitable partnership. You, as manufacturers, while I acquired and passed on to you industrial information that made you competitive and successful. He walks around the room, handed, having each man take out a microchip from the jars if he's passing around candy. It's, we are now in a unique position to form an international cartel to not only control production, but distribution of the microchips. He then tosses the rest on the desk, and the center of the desk lowers. It like splits and opens. A scale model pops up out of the center. Uh, you know, this is starting to look very familiar. Someone says, Silicon Valley, near San Francisco. Over 250 plants employing thousands of scientists, technicians. It's the hotland of electronic production, which accounts for 80% of the world microchip market. He proposes to end the domination of Silicon Valley and leave them in control. He calls it Project Mainstrike. He said that each of you pay me $100 million. The men scoff at the idea. Oh, seriously, this is all sounding very familiar. It's like deja vu. One stands up and says, plus our net income? This one says, we'll be under an exclusive marketing agreement with him. The man says it's outrageous and wants no part of it. Despite Zorn's attempt to persuade him, Zorn complies with the man's wishes and says that the rest of the meeting is confidential, asking him to wait outside. He says that Mayday will provide him with a drink. The man complies and leaves. He heads down some stairs and Mayday pushes a button, opening a hidden panel in the floor. Air whooshes in and the wind howls. The man looks back at her, shocked. She presses another button and the stairs turn into a slide and the man slides out the floor. It's revealed that they're aboard a massive blimp as the man plummets to his death in the waters below. Man, this guy is stupid. I mean, if he knew that he knows they're on a blimp, where do you think he was going by going down some stairs? Especially stairs that don't lead anywhere. There, there was no door, no indication. There was just a wall. Zorn then asks if anyone else wants to drop out. 
Oh, sweet Reese's. I can't believe it. They're ripping off Goldfinger again. Only worse, now the villain's entire operation is being ripped off. Well, instead of Goldfinger radiating Fort Knox to increase the profit of his gold and cornering the gold market, we have Zorn planning on destroying Silicon Valley to increase the profit of his microchips and corner the microchip market. And the man's reason for dying is the same as Solos and Goldfinger. He refused to take part of it. They both even had six scale models showcasing their plans. They both owned stud farms. I mean, the comparisons are just ridiculous and unbelievable. Jeez, did Richard Maybaum start running out of ideas? He started recycling previous material and hoped minor changes he made were enough so that no one would notice. Also, I did want to point out, Roger Ebert pointed out the flaw of Zoran's plan on his show Siskel and Ebert. He essentially stated that by wiping out Silicon Valley, he'll be killing off his customers, not his competition, as Silicon Valley makes the computers that would need his microchips, and that the microchips themselves are made overseas, which is true. They were made in, like, Japan and Korea and places, and China. He'd be killing the customers, not the competition. I, w I also wanted to point out, there's no, what's the incentive for these men to be paying him out $100 million in Goldfinger? He promises them more money before uh, eventually killing them. But that's what entices them to stay. Oh, you know, you can have your, you know, you know, you can have your 50 million or you can make 150 million later. And that was the, that was the point that, that enticed him to say, except for Mr. Solo here. He's just like, you're going to give me a hundred million dollars. And they're like, Okay. <laughs> you know, if they were offering like stock options or something like that, you know, okay. But the, none of that's mentioned. It's just, you're going to give me this money. And there's only one guy that, that pitched a fit about it. Okay. So the blimp ascends upon San Francisco. Mayday and Zorn look out at it in the cockpit, spotting the Golden Gate Bridge. Then we get the single worst bit of dialogue ever heard in a Bond film. And Mayday goes, wow, what of you? And Zoran leans down to her and goes, do we kill? <laughs> what? Listen, you don't have to shoehorn in the movie's title in every Bond film, especially if there's no way to add it in organically. The title already makes little sense, and trying to throw it in here as a byplay between Mayday and Zorn is just hilariously bad dialogue. I mean, what does it even mean? Oh. So anyway, we then see Fisherman's Wharf. Bond gets off a trolley and makes his way to the fish market. A worker spots Bond and asks if he's looking for anything special. Bond says, soft-shelled crabs. The man says he might have some in the back and takes Bond back there. Once alone, the man introduces himself as Chuck Lee, CIA. Actually, the original script had Felix Leiter appearing here. Uh, however, to capitalize on the San Francisco setting, the character was changed to an Asian-American character. Bond asks about Zorn, and Lee says he's in town, and asks if he wants him tailed. Bond says, not yet. Okay, again, I feel like something else is missing here. How did Bond know to go to San Francisco? Was it a hunch? I mean, the only connection was when he spoke to that oil tycoon, Conley, who said he operated out of San Francisco. It's like literally the only connection. 
So Lee pulls out the photo that Bond had taken with his ring camera and says that Conley is a geologist and that his last job was a chief engineer in a South African gold mine, but left quickly after a cave-in killed 20 miners. Bond then asks about the girl and the check. He quips, do you realize how many S. Suttons are in the U.S.? He then adds that they're monitoring Zoran's account and that the check hasn't been cashed yet. Now, it should be noted that allegedly Bond alum Maud Adams makes an appearance in the Fisherman's Wharf scene, although it's never been fully confirmed. There's also speculation as to where she can be spotted. Some have thought she's the lady getting off the trolley after Bond, wearing sunglasses and a hat, carrying a duffel bag, while others speculate she's in the background while Bond, Bond and Lee are walking and talking, wearing a black blouse and skirt with a tan jacket and sunglasses. Others, still others think her scene was deleted. Now I can tell that it's not the Lady Gator off the trolley because you're able to pause that and see a clear face and it looks nothing like uh, Maude Adams. But the other one remains a mystery because it's a bit harder. So they're further in the background, even pausing it in high definition. Uh, you, you really can't see the face that clearly. The, the sunglasses do kind of a good job covering it up and, and they're just not enough in the foreground to actually spot her. So to this day, it remains a mystery. If she is in it, she would be the only Bond woman to appear in three Bond movies, you know, by the Russians. On another side note, in a very eerie sense of predicting the future, you know, it's funny tying in a storyline about the Russians using steroids on their athletes that became huge headlines in the forefront when you know they there was a scandal about a lot of them uh their athletes in the olympics using performance enhancing drugs and wound up banning russia from you know the olympics and it, it still goes on today i just read and there was an article not too long ago about about another uh, you know there was she was part of the russian olympic committee which is a very select group of Russians that go through rigorous testing, supposedly, in order to qualify. They they're in, they they don't represent the country, so to speak. They're, it's more of like a neutral thing because you don't see the country's flag. It's just the the Olympic flag with the rings. Um, but they're known as the Russian Olympic Committee. Um, and uh, one of them was just banned. She got her medal stripped for performance enhancing drugs so it's yeah it's it's kind of almost eerie that you know, you know that it's that relevant back in the 80s and uh, and it's just now coming to the forefront years ago so anyway got a little off topic there but Tony bond says that's around the same time zorn came to the u.s so lee wonders if zorn was one of the steroid kids Bond says that he would be the right age, and he certainly is psychotic. Is he, though? I mean, we haven't really seen any display of psychotic behavior, Ed. I mean, he's headed out to kill Bond, but that's nothing new. So Bond asks about his oil operations. Lee introduces Bond to Mr. Rourke, a local fisherman. Lee says the oil operation looks clean, but has posed a problem for crab fishermen. Lee introduces Mr. Rourke to Bond, telling him that he's a reporter. Rourke says Zorn's oil pumping station has ruined the best crab patch in the bay. Bond asks if they were scared away, but Rourke says they just disappeared. Bond says he would like to take a look at the oil pumping station, but Rourke says it's heavily guarded. 
Later that evening, Bond approaches in the water wearing scuba gear. Over here is Scarpine telling the security guards that they will be testing new equipment shortly. Inside the pumping station, we hear uninteresting talk about pump valves, and Wells with Zorn mentioned that he wants to check the valve procedure for Operation Mainstrike. Bond swims underwater and makes his way through a graded pipe. Conley is there and suggests that they run the pipes at 50% capacity. Zorn says increase it to the maximum. Conley objects, saying that the new seals aren't fully tested. Zorn counters, reminds him that main strike is in three days, and if there's any delays, he will be held responsible. Conley complies. While underwater, the fan starts spinning and the intake pressure increases. Bond starts getting sucked towards it. He almost reaches the grate but can't get a grasp. Thinking quickly, he takes off his oxygen tank and jams it in the fan, causing it to stop. Conley immediately shuts it down as Bond escapes. He hides under a dock as Bond spots two figures in dark stealth clothing planting a bomb underneath the station. Scuba divers pull out the obstruction and Zorn looks at the oxygen tank with a massive gash in it. Mayday goes to look and grabs one of the saboteurs. Wow, how convenient. That someone's planning to sabotage the same time Bond's out there doing his little thing, you know. And he doesn't really doesn't really get any information. Another goon grabs the bomb that was planted and hands it to Zorn. Zorn hands it to the saboteur and says he believes this is his, asking him to sign it. The man does. They take the man and shove him down into the valve with the fan turned up to maximum. The man gets ground up in the fan blades, and Conley sees the pressure fluctuate before normalizing again. The other saboteur makes it back to shore and takes out a cassette from a Walkman. Hey, I had one just like that. So they grab it, running up to, and runs up to a 1984 Chevy Corvette parked nearby. Bond sneaks up on them and grabs them from behind. They flip Bond over their shoulder, removing the shirt and mask. Bond stands up to attack, but stops when he recognizes the poses. Pola Ivanova, Bond explains. James Bond, she replies back, taking a step back from him. Before they can talk, security shows up, and they both get in the Corvette and take off. Now, actually, it should be noted that the original script had... Agent Anya Amasova from The Spy Who Loved Me returning, and the producers asked Barbara Bach to reprise her role in a cameo. She declined uh, for reasons unknown, and they wound up creating a new character here, played by British actress Fiona Fullerton. So later, they're both at a spot in Chinatown. They sit in a hot tub with Bond giving her a shoulder massage. She says he hasn't changed. She then brings up their first encounter when she was in London with the Bolshoi, Yes, if he knew that she was an agent sent to seduce him. Bond gives his zombie staring and says, Why do you think I sent you three dozen red roses? She called it quite a performance. Bond says it's quite a coincidence them run into each other like this and says he doesn't and she says she doesn't want to talk shop. Instead, she asks Bond to put on something more inspirational. Bond agrees and gets out, putting a cassette in the boombox. He spots the cassette of the recording she left of the uh, Zorn in her purse. Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet Overture starts playing. Pollitt turns up the bubbles and giggles, saying they tickle her, but stops when she hears the music. She remarks that she loves Tchaikovsky and that detente can be wonderful. They then kiss and make whoopee in the hot tub. After their tryst, Bond is showering. Pollitt spots the cassette in Bond's clothes and takes it out. Bond says he's going to buy her six dozen red roses. She says she can't wait as she sneaks out. She runs up to a car across the street where General Gogol is waiting. She gets in and smiles, asking her if she has the tape. She takes it out and puts it in the cassette player upon which they hear. 
Chinese music. They look at it in disbelief. And that's the last we see of Pola Ivanova. A real shame, too, because she's by far the most interesting Bond woman in this film. They should have had her become a part of the second half of this movie instead of bringing back the dull as dishwater Sutton character. The second half might have been a bit more entertaining. Well, maybe. Anyway, back at the spa, Bond listens to the real tape, taking notes. We then cut to San Francisco City Hall, where Bond meets with Mr. Howe, the head of the Oil and Mines Division. Howe states that the economy needs investors like Max Zorn, and that California welcomes him with open arms. Bond, still posing as a reporter, asks why Zorn is pumping seawater into the pipeline and not oil. Mr. Howe states that they use seawater to test the integrity of the pipeline, and it's a lot safer than oil. It's used to test for any leaks. Bonson says that it wraps it up and takes Mr. Howe for his time. Mr. Howe escorts him out, asking his name. Bond says, John Stock. So wait, they didn't introduce one another at the beginning of the meeting? Did he just walk in and sit down and start asking them questions? And the guy's just like, okay, yeah, an interview. So anyway, Bond gets on the elevator, but stops the door from closing. We recognize Miss Sutton from Zorn's party. She runs up to Mr. Howe, explains she has some tests to show him. Yes, remember her? Because I didn't. Honestly, the first time I saw this film, I had completely forgotten she was in this. That brief moment that she was in over an hour earlier in the film. Nearly an hour. This film hasn't been going on that long. When you really think about it, it feels like it's been going on forever. Bond leaves, but waits for her in the lobby. As she leaves for the day, he follows her. She gets into a state vehicle, a 1984 Jeep Cherokee and takes off. Bond follows her in a 1984 Ford LTD LX. He follows her past the San Andreas Lake Reservoir to a large plantation-style house in the country. He hides the car from plain sight and walks up to the house. Noticing the door is locked, he goes up to the window and pulls out a Sharper Image credit card? Hey, Bond shops at Sharper Image, I mean. And all sorts of useless stuff. Uh, and it has some sort of concealed magnet in it, and a light that lights up it. It makes a beeping noise and unlocks the metal lock on the window. And, you know, I should point out, fans give Live and Let Die a lot of shit for Bond using gadgets that Q didn't show him. But this one is by far the worst. I mean, we only saw Q playing with his robot, talk about microchips, and attend a horse race. Yet somehow Bond wound up with all these high-tech gadgets that seem more like Deus Ex Machina's now more than ever before. So anyway, Bond enters and is spooked by a cat. Seriously? The jump scare with a cat cliché? So he hears the shower running and heads upstairs. He opens the shower door. Why? And Miss Sutton comes out of the closet, a shotgun in her hand. She thinks he's another Zorin stooge, failing to recall his name. Bond says it's John Stock of the London Financial Times. She doesn't care and picks up the phone to call the police. Bond says that she can tell them about the $5 million payoff Zorin gave her, adding that he saw the check. Miss Sutton looks shocked and pissed again as she tries the phone again. She hangs it up, accusing Bond of cutting the line. Bond realizes something is up. As if on cue, we see shadows and silhouettes outside on the balcony passing by the window. Bond grabs the shotgun and fires out the window. One goon leaps off the balcony to avoid getting shot. Another goon makes his way upstairs, and Bond goes to shoot, but is blocked. He smacks the guy with the butt of the gun, knocking him over the banister and onto the chandelier. Another goon runs up the stairs, and Bond shoots him square in the chest. The guy falls down the stairs, but is surprised to see he doesn't have a massive hole in him. Bond asks what the gun is loaded with. Miss Sutton replies, rock salt. Oh, no, you tell me, Bond quips, as another goon whips a chain at him, wrapping it around the gun. 
Bond punches and kicks the goon while Miss Sutton attempts to attack the other. The goon quickly pushes her to the ground. Well, that was pointless. So Bond and the goon trade blows as they knock into a vase sitting on a pedestal. Miss Sutton screams about the vase, going over and on and on about it. Bond protects it while also protecting himself. He eventually hands it to her as she keeps whining about it. Bond takes on the two goons and says he decides to screw it and breaks the vase over the goon's head. She looks at a portrait and apologizes to her granddad. The goon jumps into a car and takes off. Bond hands her some pieces and says, that's all the king's horses and all the king's men won't do much with that. Okay. So she said, that's all right, that they were her granddad's ashes. You know, that's funny. I didn't see anything come out of the vase when she smashed it over the guy's head. So she added that he loved a good fight. She introduces herself as Stacy Sutton. Bond says he's researching an article on Zora. Stacy says that she has quite a few things about him, and Bond shows interest. She hears the cat meow and says she has to feed him, asking if he would like something to eat. Bond finally equips, what are we having, whiskers? Now, this is probably the only time I intentionally laughed in this movie. So Stacy says she doesn't have much in the kitchen as she's a pathetic cook. Bond says he can help. In the cook kitchen, Bond cooks quiche. Again, Bond, the man of many talents. Stacy, who put on a different dress for no apparent reason, says it sounds interesting, and that's what it is. Bond gives her his wide-eyed look and says, an omelet. Bond then asks more about her grandfather. She says he started Sutton Oil and left it to her father, who expected her as an only child to take over someday. So she studied geology in college. Bond asks what happened. Stacy said it was Zorn. He took over Sutton Oil in a rigged proxy fight. She had said she attempted to fight him in the courts, but he wound up taking everything she had. She says she took a job as a state geologist so she can hold onto the house and still has a few of her shares. Bond figures that's why the five million, what the film $5 million was for, her shares. She says the offer was 10 times more than they're worth. She says it's also to get her to drop the lawsuit and shut her mouth. Bond figures that's when Zorin sent his gorillas along to help her decide. She says they have and then proceeds to tear up the check. Bond looks shocked. An hour later, I guess the, the transition is terrible here. It looks as if it went from day to night, gauging by the lighting. But they had just finished eating the quiche as Stacy comments on how delicious it was. So they drink wine. Bond says he'll make sure the doors and windows are locked and the phone is reconnected to as those baboons may, be, may come back. So Bond is outside and fixes the phone box. Damn, Bond continues to showcase his many, many talents. He's also a professional electrician and telephone repairman. Who knew? And he did it all with a Swiss Army knife. I mean, honestly, did we really need this scene? Bond says he was going to do it, so we actually have to show him doing it. Otherwise, the audience might think he was slacking off or something. God, that's another pointless scene that pads out the runtime. So the next morning, Bond has fallen asleep in the chair, the gun in his lap. A cat wakes him up, and the birds are freaking out. Stacy gets up and asks, and Bond asks, what's with her animals? She says there was an earth tremor, and they're extremely sensitive to seismic activity. She turns on her computer to see what the earthquake center says. She says it was a minor tremor that measured 2.9 on the Richter scale. Would you feel a 2.9 tremor? I lived in California for a little bit in the L.A. area, and there was a slight tremor. I thought it was a truck rolling by, but it was a tremor because it lasted longer. Uh, heck, I felt the tremor living uh, here in Arizona that was from a... Uh, a minor earthquake that happened in California. 
2.9 an area that would have been certainly have been felt. She then says that's odd, as the epicenter was near Zorn's oil field. Bond wonders if there's a connection with Zorn pumping seawater into his pipeline. Stacy says those wells are in the Haywood Fault, and wonder if he's if he's sure. Bond says he's checked it himself. Stacy says that's dangerous, and they have to stop him. Over at San Francisco City Hall, Stacy comes running out of the oil and mine office, telling Bond that Mr. Howe fired her dropping papers for some reason. Bond helps her and says that this evening they're going to meet with a friend from Washington and hopefully get some answers. That evening, they're back at Stacy's house. And what was the point of them going to City Hall just to find out that she's fired? What? Why? So anyway, they're back at Stacy's house. Three, two, one. So that evening, they're back at Stacy's house. Bond and Stacy are talking with Lee. Lee says he needs more specifics on Zorn's intentions before he goes to the top. Stacy mentions that flooding a vault could cause a major earthquake. Bond says that Zorn mentioned Silicon Valley on the tape. Stacy said that Silicon Valley is too far away. Bond counters and says if we knew how many wells were involved, we might get a clearer picture. Stacy said they'd have information about it at City Hall and that she can get it because she still has her security pass. Yes, and there's no way that they would immediately disable the security pass or render it unusable after your termination. Lee says he'll contact Washington to get more help, and Bond says that they only have 24 hours. Lee gets inside his 1984 Ford Bronco when a silhouetted figure appears in the backseat. Any guess to who it is? So the silhouette figure appears and strangles him, music blaring from the radio. Bond and Stacy leave as they see Lee's Bronco take off. They get in her Cherokee and take off themselves. Now we're back at City Hall, where Stacy signs in at the guard desk. Ah, yes, nice security. One, he doesn't question why an employee has a guest with her. And two, they don't have a list of terminated employees. What if she was a disgruntled worker and was going in there to wreak havoc? Or steal stuff. Well, they actually, they are stealing stuff, so. Terrible security. So anyway, outside, a car pulls up, and Scarpine gets out. Bond and Stacy enter the file room, and Stacy flips through a filing cabinet. They find a map that's labeled Main Strike Mine, with a section labeled Murphy E. Dodge Silver Smelter. Stacy says that's an abandoned silver mine by the San Andreas Fault. Bond pockets it when a flashlight shines on them. It's Zorin and Mayday. Alive and well, I see, and still bungling in the dock, Zorin says. Bond asks to enlighten him. Zorn says, you're out depth. He then tells Stacy that he, she should have accepted his more than generous offer. Stacy says he can take his offer and shove it, but Bond cuts her off till it's no use because he's a psychopath. Zorn asks if they join forces, then laughs and says that simplifies things. Mayday pats him down and takes Bond's gun. They enter the office where Mr. Howe is still working. He's confused to see Stacy and Zorn there. Zorn tells Howe to call the police as there's been a break-in. Well, technically, they didn't break in. It would be considered trespassing on government property, if anything. Bond tells Howe that he's being used, but Zorn tells him to do it and have them come quickly. Howe dials 911 and tells him about the break-in. Howe asks what they did. Zorn says that since he discharged her, she and an accomplice came to kill Howe and, and set the office on fire to conceal the crime, only to find themselves trapped in the elevator and perished in the flames. He then takes Bond's gun from Mayday. How says, that means I would have to be dead. Zorn finishes for him, coldly shooting him in the heart. 
Someone then looks at Bond and goes, that's rather neat, don't you think? So Bond says it's brilliant, and he's almost speechless with anticipation. Miss Flex enters. Oh, look. More nothing for her to do. Zorn says that intuitive improvisation is the secret of genius. Bond quips that Dr. Mortner would be proud of his creation. This leaves Zorin speechless, as if he doesn't know what to say before having Mayday usher them out to the elevator. Miss Flex is finally given something to do as she splashes gasoline all over the office. Mayday puts Bond and Stacy in the elevator, then has it stopped in between floors. Zorin lights a Molotov cocktail using Bacardi rum, no less. Nice product placement there. And tosses it down the elevator shaft. The shaft erupts in flames. He tosses another Molotov in the office and lights it on fire. The fire spreads quickly as Bond tries not to burn himself when opening the escape hatch. One of the cables snap and the elevator leans. Bond manages to get himself up and miraculously avoids first to second degree burns, even though he's standing mere inches from giant flames. And he manages to grab onto Stacy as the elevator cable snaps and plummets down the shaft. Uh, Bond then climbs up uh, the uh, ladder to open the elevator door. Stacy whines and cries all the time. Don't leave me, James, James, screaming for her help. Shut up. I'm trying to save our lives, Bond was probably wanting to say. Bond gets up onto the floor and tosses down a fire hose to pull her up. Yes, use the hose as a ladder rather than, you know, use as it's intended and put out the fire. So the San Francisco Fire Department arrives, and the hook and ladder truck hoists up its ladder as firefighters go in. Bond emerges from the window and carries Stacy down from the fire. He sets her down as paramedics look her over. The San Francisco police captain approaches Bond and says he needs to talk to him. Bond tells the captain that if they get into Howe's office, they'll find him dead. Captain says they found him, and they found this gun, asking if it's his. Bond says yes, and thanks him as he's about to grab it, but the captain goes to place him under arrest. Firstly, that's real dumb on Bond's part to assume that they're just going to hand over evidence, especially since he has it in an evidence bag. Secondly, how did they get it out so fast? I mean, the entire office was engulfed in flames. That gun would have been partially melted or exploded as the other bullets most likely would have heated up and gone off. Typically, they don't start looking for evidence until after the fire is out. They start sifting through the rubble. So anyway, Bond tells him to contact Chuck Lee of the CIA and he'll tell him who he is. Captain says they found his body in Chinatown. Bond is stunned. Stacy tries to defend him by saying, well, he's James Stock of the London Financial Times. Bond says he's actually with British Secret Service and gives his real name. Captain asks Stacy if he really is, and Stacy asks Bond if he really is, to which Bond says yes. The captain says then he's Dick Tracy and he's still under arrest. Bond flips on the water spigot on the fire truck he's next to, blasting the captain with water and knocking him down. He and Stacy then steal the fire truck and take off. As they take off, the fire chief runs up and asks where they're going as the ladder is unlocked. They scream down the street and Stacy turns on the siren. The captain takes pursuit and shows he's a terrible driver crashing into passing cars. Bond has Stacy take the wheels. He climbs out on the ladder. And then the captain radios in backup and another unit joins the pursuit, smashing into the captain. Their bumpers lock and they can't separate until they reach a split in the road. There's a sign there that separates them. As Stacy takes a turn, the ladder swings out and Bond hangs on for dear life, or in one moment, what looks like an action figure as it swings stiffly, little knees bent and everything. Bond dodges cars, knocking off cowboy hats and avoiding cars by hoisting himself up. 
Stacy turns in the ladder, swings the other way. Bond avoids more cards and gets an upper body workout in. Uh, the ladder knocks the camper off the back of a pickup truck, revealing a couple doing the nasty. What a strange place to park and have sex in the middle of the city. So the captain looks embarrassed to see them. Bond is able to climb into the Tillerman's cab, which is part of the hook and ladder truck that drives the rear axle, and takes control. They manage to evade the police, but the captain phones the bridge controller and has him raise the bridge. They see the bridge starting to raise, and Bond tells Stacy to keep driving. They ramp over it. Honestly, not quite as spectacular as when uh, a similar stunt is done in the Blues Brothers, as it's there's so many edits here. Uh, it's like they couldn't actually ramp a fire truck off the bridge, but but they ramp over it and the cops don't make it. Squad car starts sliding down as the bridge keeps going up. Why does the controller stop it? We see him clearly watching the chaos. He's looking out those windows, staring up at it. He, why did he stop the bridge from raising and start lowering it once he sees it's only the cars? You know, the cop car is sliding down. So only after the last police car comes crashing down does he lower the bridge. I guess he just wanted to see crashes. So the captain scolds the officer, telling him he can forget about that sergeant promotion and that the damage is coming out of his paycheck. Yeah, I'm not sure that's how it works. We then see the concrete counterweight going down as the controller lowers the bridge. Again, finally lowering it and crushes the captain's squad car. The captain comically grimaces while the other officers laugh. See, it's pointless shit like this that helps make this movie seem so long. Speaking of which, at this time, at its time, this was the longest-running Bond film, clocking in at two hours and 11 minutes. My god, this movie is taking forever! So Bond and Stacy drive the fire truck to the abandoned mine and see it buzzing with activity. You mean the, the local PD, the San Francisco PD, didn't bother to ra radio the, the California Highway Patrol, San Francisco Sheriff's Office, or the California State Police about a couple of alleged fugitives who stole a city fire truck? They just figure, well, they outsmarted us. Guess there's nothing else we can do. So Bond pretends to be a firefighter and flags down a truck carrying chemicals. The guy stupidly asks where the fire is when he should have been asking what a hook and ladder truck is doing there. Bond says it's on his rear end, so the guy gets out and examines the back of the truck. He doesn't see anything, and Bond knocks him out as he circles around the truck. They get in the truck and drive it up to the main gate, but are stopped by security. The guard hands Bond a hard hat, stating it's the rules. Why did he grab the one the guy was wearing? He already knocked him out. Just another dumb reason to create false suspense. So they go through and get out. Stacy sneaks into an office and puts on a pair of coveralls. They talk to the foreman and instructs them where to go. He stops when he spots Stacy wearing high heels. Bond says it's women's lib and that they're taking over the Teamsters. That still doesn't explain the inappropriate footwear for a mine. I mean, that would still be that alone would still be a red flag. Bond says he needs to get a closer look at the mine, and Stacy says, "Why not?" Showing him a set of gray coveralls. She switches into them. I swear she does more costume changes than any other Bond woman. She switches into them, and they hop inside a minecart. Bond asks her to sit still. But she points out that what they're lying on, explosives. They go into the mineshaft, where miners are tirelessly working. They spot Zorn and Mayday, along with Miss Flex and Scarpine. They sneak out of the minecart and hide underneath the tracks. They sneak inside a control room, where they spot Zorn with Mayday and Conley. Zorn enters a key and turns on a bomb. They then lower the bomb into the mine shaft. 
Scarpine sneaks up and activates a bomb on the carts full of explosives. Bond and Stacy look at an electronic map in the control room, outlining all the explosives that Zorn has planted. Stacy explains that they're right beneath the genealogical lock that prevents the faults from moving all at once. Basically, Zorn plans on triggering an earthquake on both faults that will flood the mine and into Silicon Valley. Zorn and Mayday try and enter the control room, but find it locked. Bond and Stacy escape out a window. Zorn breaks in and tries to shoot at them, but misses as they escape down the mine. They head down an abandoned section of the mine. Stacy nearly falls down a hole, but Bond saves her and adds nothing to the plot. It's just false suspense. Mayday pursues after them as Bond and Stacy attempt to climb out of the shaft. The old ladder snaps and Bond nearly falls. Up on top, Zorn says it's time to flood the shaft and prep the trigger. Three, two, one. Up on top, Zorn says it's time to flood the shaft and preps the trigger. Conley objects, saying that Mayday and his men are still down there. Zorn calls it a convenient coincidence. Conley says that those men were loyal to him. Scarpine knocks him out and tosses Conley down into the shaft. Zorn hits the switch and the bombs explode. A man fishing on the lake is surprised to see a blast of water just explode up. Zorn tries to run to safety, including Miss Flex. Those that make it are maniacally gunned down by Zorn and Scarpine. And the, now here, in this, all the scenes where he's sh shooting the the innocent people are trying to, you know, survive. The look on Zorn's face as he effort effortlessly guns down these innocent people is the first true glimpse we have into this character being psychotic. So anyway, Mayday spots Bond and Stacy, and he tries to grab Stacy. She manages to elude grasp as Bond jumps out down to Mayday. Stacy gets up, but the shaft floods, and Bond and Mayday are swept away. They try to swim to safety. Meanwhile, Zorn and Scarpine finish off any remaining survivors and take off out of the shaft. Bond and Mayday find each other. She's all pissed at Zorin, saying that she thought that creep loved her. Bond says she wasn't the only one that was double-crossed. Zorin and Scarpine enter the foreman's trailer and press a bunch of buttons inside. Dr. Mortner is already in there. Zorin pushes a button, and the roof opens up, where the envelope of the blimp, which is the, the balloon part, fills up. In minutes, it's fully inflated. Now, in reality, it would actually take hours to inflate a blimp of that size. And the blimp takes off. So Bond and Mayday make their way out of the mine where they spot the massive bomb that Zorn is going to use to disrupt the faults. Up in the blimp, Zorn and Scarpine stop the blimp just over the valley so they can watch. Zorn says it'll be the biggest cataclysm in history. Dr. Mortner adds that it will be all due to natural causes, to which Zorn laughs. Bond says he has to get down and defuse the detonator. Mayday says he can't as it's booby-trapped. If he messes with it, he'll, it'll blow up. Three, two, one. Bond says he has to get down and defuse the detonator. Mayday says he can't as it's booby-trapped. If he messes with it, it'll blow up. Bond then states that they'll have to get it out of there. Mayday tells Bond to get on the rig and, she lower, and she'll lower him down. He does, and he attaches the bomb to the rig. Mayday uses all her strength to raise Bond and the bomb back up. Stacy makes it out of the mine and spots the blimp in the air. Bond and Mayday place it on a handcart and release the brake, pushing it down the track towards the outside. However, the brake slips and the cart stops. Mayday says she'll have to stay on and hold the brake. Bond keeps telling her to jump, running after the cart. Mayday shouts to Bond, Get Zoran for me! Zoran stops smiling when he sees Mayday exit the mine with the bomb. Mayday looks up and glares at him where the bomb explodes. Honestly, I really think she could have gotten off in time and survived. 
So Stacy runs up to Bond, but Zorin has the blimp fly low and swoops down to grab her. I mean, this thing moves incredibly fast and covers an incredible amount of distance in a matter of seconds. So Bond holds on to the mooring rope as it takes off. They make their way to the Golden Gate Bridge as Bond hangs on for dear life. People gawk as they see people hanging from the blimp as it passes over San Francisco. We even see that police captain again from earlier who gets rear-ended because he's staring at the blimp. Ugh. Bond gets hit in the groin by an antenna. Ugh. They hang low towards the Golden Gate Bridge, intending to knock Bond into it. Bond swings around the bridge's cables and ties the mooring rope to it, and now the blimp is stuck. Zorin tells Scarpine to give it more power, but it won't go anywhere. Bond climbs up onto the bridge. Stacy runs up and grabs Zorn, shouting for him to stop it. Scarpine stops driving to get Stacy off, and the cockpit of the blimp crashes into the bridge. Stacy knocks Scarpine out with a fire extinguisher and climbs out to Bond. She slips and rolls down, but Bond manages to catch her. Zorn grabs an axe and heads out to fight Bond. Zorn knocks Bond around and tries to strangle him, but Bond manages to get his footing back. He manages to make Zorn lose his balance. Zorn tries to hold on, but can't and falls to his doom. Mortner's pissed that his protege is gone and starts shooting at them. He pulls out some dynamite and lights it, ready to throw it at Bond. Bond cuts the mooring rope, which causes the blimp to buck up. Mortner goes reeling back and drops the dynamite. He can't get rid of it, and the blimp explodes in spectacular fashion. He holds on to Stacy and jokes that there's another cab when you need one. So back at MI6 headquarters, General Gogol is there to present Bond with the Order of Lenin medal, stating that it's the first ever awarded to a non-Soviet. M states he thought the KGB would have been happy that Silicon Valley was destroyed. Google says on the contrary, stating that there would be Rus where would Russian research be without it? Now it should be noted here that Google does refer to M as Admiral, which should fully solidify the theory that Robert Brown's M and Admiral Hargraves, his character from Spy Love Me, are one and the same. So Gogol says he would like to thank him, but M says he's missing and that the search continues. Moneypenny overhears this on the intercom and looks devastated. We then see Q's robot entering a room. Q is outside Stacy's house in a Winnebago. The robot searches the house and encounters the cat. He hears laughing and giggling in the bathroom. He raises the neck of the robot as it enters the bathroom. Q, you know what's going on there. You don't need to physically see. And scoffs at what he sees, Bond and Stacy getting it on in the shower. The phone rings and M is on the other line, using the codename Grandfather. Is it not a secure line that they have to use codenames? Bond spots the robot as M asks Q what's going on. Q says that Bond is alive. M asks what he's doing, and Q says, just cleaning up a few details. Bond tosses a towel over the robot, and we cut to the credits. And that was a view to a kill. Now, A View to a Kill premiered on May 22nd, 1985 at the Odeon Leicester Square in London. It had the biggest opening for a Bond film in the U.S. and Canada, opening to 1,583 theaters over the four-day Memorial Day weekend on May 24th. Now, despite its large opening, it still opened at number two in the box office behind Rambo First Blood Part Two, which was released on the same weekend. And it's... Been I don't know if it's big egos or what, but why do they consistently decide to go up against uh, big-budget sequels? Now, despite it never reaching number one in the U.S. box office, it would go on to gross $50.3 million in the U.S. and Canada and a total of $152.4 million worldwide 
It would also become the 11th highest grossing film in 1985 in the U.S. Now let's take a look at the reviews. Now the reviews were mostly negative with a few positives, mainly aiming at Moore's age. Uh, I myself, I think this is the worst Bond film. Uh, I give it two stars. Uh, I find it to be very slow-paced and very boring. Some of There's some uh, good action sequences, the, the car chase in Paris, uh, the climactic showdown atop the Golden Gate Bridge, but it's uh, the action is too far and few between. It's the, the rest of the action seems stilted, and it's unexciting. It features two of the worst Bond women, I think, ever, with Tiny Roberts and Grace Jones, with Roberts being the absolute worst. Uh, it's just her performance is just absolutely atrocious. It's it's monotonous. It's just a very wooden, a very cardboard performance. Uh, Walken, who is known for playing eccentric characters, uh, comes off surprisingly one note uh, and is a forgettable villain. He His character is supposed to be a psychopath, and he hardly acts like he is supposed to be. He's very, plays it very mild throughout the film. Um, there's only like one brief moment where he, he comes across like any kind of, you know, as being psychotic, but uh, it's brief. Uh, and Moore, Roger Moore, this time uh, is and looks far too old to be playing Bond. And that just makes the action and romantic scenes all the more unconvincing. Uh, and the fact that the villain's scheme is a direct ripoff of Goldfinger's scheme in Goldfinger is alone troublesome. In fact, a lot of the plot elements are a ripoff of Goldfinger, which, again, they did an octopus, and now they're doing it worse here. And so you may be asking yourself, if I don't like this film so much, why am I giving it two stars? Well, that second star is for a few reasons. For the the incredible stunt work, John Barry's amazing score, and Duran Duran's incredibly awesome theme song. I think this is the best theme song of the entire Bond franchise, bar none. It is just absolutely incredible. Uh, I'll listen to it every single time and never get tired of the song. It's just amazing. Now, Paul Atanasio of the Washington Post said, Moore isn't just long in the tooth, he's got tusks. And what looks like an eye job has given him the pie-eyed blankness of a zombie. He's not believable anymore in the action sequences, even less so in the romantic scenes. It's like watching women fall all over Gabby Hayes. <laughs> uh, I love that line. Now, for those listeners unaware, for you that may not know, look up the name Gabby Hayes, Google it or something like that, and you'll see exactly what they're talking about. Gabby Hayes was a popular character actor in the 30s and 40s. He usually played a grizzled, wisecracking, but loyal comic sidekick in westerns. Uh, but definitely Google it. You'll get you'll get under and f understand why I find that funny. Now, Pauline Kale of the New Yorker said that the James Bond series has had its bummers, but nothing before in the class of A View to a Kill. You go to a Bond picture expecting some style or at least some flash, some lift. You don't expect the dumb police car crashes you get here. You do see some ingenious daredevil feats, but they're crowded together. And the way they're set up, they don't give you the irresponsible giddy tingle you're hoping for. Now, however, Lawrence O'Toole of Canadian magazine McLean's believe it's one of the series' best entries. He states, 
that a view to a kill is an especially satisfying encounter. Opening with a breathtaking ski chase in Siberia, this is the fastest Bond picture yet. Its pace has the precision of a Swiss watch and the momentum of a greyhound on the track. There is a spectacular chase up and down the Eiffel Tower and through the streets of Paris, which Bond finishes in a severed car on just two wheels. He also adds that despite Moore's age, there are plenty of tunes left in his violin. First of all, I want to know what Mr. O'Toole was on when he saw this movie. Secondly, I need to check, but I'm pretty sure he watched the film playing at one and a half times its normal speed. Because there's no way anyone would consider this the fastest Bond picture yet. Brian Arthurs of The Beach Reporter was simple. He says it's one of the worst Bond films. Now, Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times criticized the fact that Walken Zorn character doesn't have much to do. As I mentioned in my uh, my discussion of the plot, um, Roger Ebert pointed this out. He pointed out the flaw in Zorn's plan as the computer manufacturers in Silicon Valley are merely just the purchasers of the microchips that they put into the computers they designed. The microchips are, in fact, manufactured overseas in like Japan. He points out that he's not essentially killing the competition, but his customers. He adds that it has a lot of action, but it doesn't add up to much. Now, Gene Siskel of the Chicago Trib Tribune wasn't favorable either. He states that he never really liked Moore here, and even more so in this one. He states that with his lighthearted approach to the character, we never feel in jeopardy for him. He also felt the entire cast was miscast, especially Walker. As a result, on their review show, Sneak Previews, Siskel and Ebert gave it two thumbs down. Now, film critic Leonard Moulton gave it two stars as well, calling it one of the weakest James Bond films. He says that it saddles 007 with a bland villain, a monotonous villainous, and a wimpy leading lady, and it goes on forever. Just to reiterate my points there, he adds that only some spectacular stunt sequences keep it alive, and that Fiona Fullerton, who plays a Russian spy, disappears too soon. Now let's take a look at the differences between the novel and the film. Once again, everything. In fact, the movie only borrows a portion of the title. As I mentioned earlier, the short story is titled From A View to a Kill, but the from was removed for no apparent reason. The plot in the film is entirely original and no elements are used from the short. Now the short story revolves around Bond investigating the murder of a motorcycle dispatch rider and the theft of his top secret documents by a motorcycle riding assassin. Bond winds up disguising himself as a dispatch rider following the same route and is attacked by the same assassin who Bond winds up killing. They didn't even attempt to throw in like a backstory like they did with Octopus, even though they didn't use the short story plot. They still kind of added in as, as a form of backstory. Uh, they just decided to completely do away with it. At this point, they're just borrowing the titles. And not even the whole title, because A View to a Kill honestly makes no sense from A View to a Kill. Would have made more sense, but I guess they wanted to shorten it or something. Now, there was a video game adaptation of the film that was released on June 7th, 1985. It was officially titled A View to a Kill, the computer game. This was actually the first 007 game to be based on a movie. Uh, they did do some ones like uh, Live and Let Die and stuff like that, but those came out afterwards. Uh, the game follows three separate scenes from the movie, the Paris sequence in which Bond steals a taxi to chase after a parachuting mayday. Uh, the display shows three sections, an overhead map of Paris, a small 3D view from the car's uh, point of view, and a scanner showing mayday's height. The object is to get to the right location before she lands. The second scene has Bond helping Stacey Sutton escape San Francisco City Hall, which is on fire. 
Each room is displayed as a side-scroller, and Bond must collect items to assist in escaping. Uh, the third section has Bond running around the mine in the film's climax. This is another side-scrolling part, with Bond having to collect code numbers to deactivate Zorn's bomb. Uh, the game was published by Domark and released for the ZX Spectrum, uh, Amstrad CPC, Commodore 64, Orc 1, Orc Atmos, and the MSX home computers. Now, there was a second game titled James Bond 007 of You to a Kill, which was a text adventure developed by Angelsoft and published by Mindscape. It was released for DOS and Apple II computers. There was also a role-playing game based on the movie released in 1985. And the Mayday character has received cult status among Bond fans, mostly for the androgynous style that, the, that she approached with the character. She became a playable multiplayer character in 1997's GoldenEye and 2000's The World Is Not Enough, both for Nintendo 64. Uh, in the 2002 game Nightfire, both Mayday and Max Zorn appear as bots in the multiplayer mode. Uh, the movie also has ties to the 2004 007 game Everything or Nothing. That game's primary villain, Nikolai Diavolo, which is played and voiced by Willem Dafoe, states that Max Zorn was his mentor and friend. Uh, in the 2004 spinoff GoldenEye Rogue Agent, one of the multiplayer levels is the summit of the Golden Gate Bridge and includes the Zorn blimp, which would fire on players when activated. Players are also able to climb the suspension cables. So that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Smithflix Experience. I hope you had a good time. As always, feel free to reach out to me with any comments at smithflixpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can listen Spot anywhere podcasts are available, Spotify, Audible, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Uh, don't worry, though. James Bond will return in The Living Daylights. Thank you.